this is Swordplay. I'm Nick Perez. Alex, a pastor in southern Ethiopia, was killed by a crocodile as he was preparing to baptize 80 people. What in the world are we to make of this? Wow. Well, you know what the scripture says, Nick. Uh, Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring crocodile seeking someone to devour. <laughs> are you sure that's what it says? Um, so you're going with a literal interpretation there on that, right? Uh, <laughs> Wait, is, is this a real story? Did that really happen? That, that's a true story straight off of the intraweb via Fox News. Oh, man. So, yeah. Well, sorry about that. There goes our Ethiopian sponsors. <laughs> this is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I'm Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. You know, we got into Titus chapter 1, and uh, it really went by faster than I thought it would. I was like, oh, there's not much here, but boy, we just kept finding more and more stuff. So we're going to dig into Titus chapter 2, probably more than meets, uh, more here than meets the eye. And I say we just jump right into it, Nick. And before we do, we just want to remind our listeners, if you've not yet read Titus uh, chapter yes. 2, grab your Bible, hit pause, we'll still be here when you get back, and read Titus chapter 2, read it again, read it one more time, maybe read the whole book, it'll take you 10, 15 minutes to do, and then come back, hit play, and listen to what we have to say about it. That's a good idea, Nick. We don't always read the entire text. We're assuming that you're familiar with it and you're ready to dive into some questions. Which uh, our first question is, Nick, we have this phrase that's repeated often in Titus that's uh, the word sound, and it's often referring to sound doctrine. Now, what is sound doctrine? Yeah, right there in verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Paul right into Titus, as we talked about in the previous episode. And uh, that word sound shows up, as you mentioned, several times. Uh, 1 verse 9, verse 13 of chapter 1, 2 verse 1 here, 2 verse 2, and 2 verse 8 as well. And so a very common key word in the book of Titus. And it, it literally means uh, healthy. Uh, in fact, we get our English word hygiene from the original language word that's used here by Paul. So that gives you an idea of the uh, the medical background, if you will. It's, a, it's an interesting phrase, though, especially sound doctrine and, and what is meant by sound doctrine. What I think we would expect from Paul when he uses that phrase, at least the way we use the phrase sound doctrine, is for Paul to start delineating theological issues and break these things down systematically, untying all the tied knots of theology and Christology and pneumatology and soterology and eschatology and all the other ologies. Because that's what, again, that's typically what we think when it comes to sound doctrine. But that's not the way Paul uses it. Paul identifies, what he identifies as sound or healthy doctrine is actually more of an ethical thing. It's a kingdom ethics thing and, and Christian practice. It revolves around things like self-control and purity, in-home relations, on-the-job conduct. In a word, 
healthy teaching is about holy Christian conduct. Now, Alex, does that make sense, or am I way off base here with this? Well, Nick, are you trying to tell me that Paul did not give Titus a 5,000-page codex of systematic theology? If he did, it was lost to time and history, because we don't have that. Hmm. It might be with the Ark. That's what I'm thinking. (laughs) Someone needs to go up there and find that thing. Indiana Jones. It's in Area 51, in case you want to go look at it. (laughs) Uh, No, Nick, I think you're right. You look through the entire letter of Titus, and he will repeat the phrase, doctrine, teaching, um, commandments, this kind of idea, in order to say you need to be able to uh, teach sound doctrine and defend those who are against it. And yet you don't have a lot of diving into, well, what's, what's the doctrine? Uh, at least not in the sense that we typically think of doctrine. You're right. He talks more about the Christian virtues, the lifestyle. What kind of fruit are you bearing in your life? And what kind of life do you live? And is that something recognizable? So in other words, Paul is really concerned with not with how much they know, but how much they live out their faith as representatives of Christ and his kingdoms. Is it in a way that other people can see a difference between you and those around you who do not follow or pledge their allegiance to Christ? I really think that's what sound doctrine is being used to mean in this letter. Is that what you were going for, Nick? Exactly. Yeah, um, you're right. There's no 5,000-page dissertation or thesis that breaks down uh, every doctrinal issue, um, and and it's it's about this, it's about the the lifestyle of a Christian. That's what accords with sound doctrine. Are there that things? Might, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that might make it um, easier for us to understand what are the things that we have to be united on as Christians, and when we try to put it into a certain set of doctrinal positions, as in what we believe, um, we never come up with the same criteria. That's why we have so many different uh, divisions within the the world of Christendom, whether it's uh, denominationalism or schisms within any one group. You have people coming to different conclusions as to what is it exactly that we need to believe or agree with with one another. And we usually are talking about things that we believe, and we're not talking about lifestyles in which we should live. And I wonder if that goes against the grain. I wonder if that rubs us the wrong way as Americans, as people who have rights and freedoms. Paul will have something to say about freedom in this letter and in other letters and how you are to use your freedom, both in life and in Christ. And it's more than just uh, what you believe. There there's a lot more to it than that. Now, Nick, one of these virtues in here that I think constitutes the sound doctrine, which he's referring to, is the virtue of self-control. Now, mm-hmm. my translation says sensible, and he's going to repeat this four times just in this one chapter, verse 2, verse 5, verse 6, verse 12. What does the word sensible mean? Why is it important? The word itself is um, it's actually a contraction, um, a compound word, and it the first part means to save, the second part means the mind. 
And so uh, you can come up with the idea of uh, saving the mind, and it does uh, the the antonym, the opposite of it is to be senseless. I think that's where the sensible part comes in with the translation of the New American Standard. Um, the uh, again, the opposite means senseless, without reason, foolish, even stupid. Um, but it carries this idea. Uh, the antonym does of allowing the mind to be lost and so when Paul says you need to be self-controlled he's calling um, the whole Christian community the whole church to not lose their mind chasing after sin and and that's the thing about self-control is when we don't exercise it we we unmoor ourselves from the sane shores of sanity which is faith and um, self-control in Christ Jesus. So, you know, when it, the importance of it, when I, when I counsel people um, and they, they have control issues, they are either controlling other people or they themselves are out of control, you know, one of the things I tell people is when it comes to what God commands us in His Word, He commands us and tells us the only person that we are to control. The only person we're called to control is ourself. We're not supposed to control anybody else in the world. And and since self-control is something that God commands of us, and He wouldn't command us to do something we can't do, this must be something we can pursue and attain to by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. So, um, does that make sense, self-control and all that? I think so, Nick. You know, it kind of reminds me of some study that I did on the occult and Satanism and the dark arts and magic, not as in sleight of hand magic, but like actual um, ancient uh, idolatrous uh, sorcery kind of stuff. And I kept coming across really just an overriding uh, command. And it's really, it's the only command that you will find in satanic worship. Do you know what that command is? Um, you're going to have to tell me. Okay, it's do as thou wilt. Hmm. Do as thou wilt. That's the only command in uh, satanic worship and occult-like practices. And here we have the exact opposite. It's not do as thou wilt, but be self-controlled, be sensible, show restraint. And again, you can take this to the extreme, like uh, those who would completely uh, beat up and deprive the body uh, well, that's not it. We're not being called to be masochists, but it's also not uh, indulge in every uh, desire. Do whatever you want. Um, that's not it either. That's satanic. That's doctrines of demons. And so we're not just talking about um, choosing what is good and having a good set of, of morals and values and worldview, but we're talking about a path that is the alternative to what happens when you don't show self-control when you go into the path of uh, self-indulgence and doing whatever it is you want and thinking only about yourself two paths broad road and a narrow road uh, broad gate narrow gate so one of the groups that is addressed by Titus and is commanded to exercise self-control in verse 2 are older men um, and if you look at some of the qualities that Titus is encouraging them to be. It's uh, very similar 
if not identical, to what we saw with the overseers, the elders, in chapter 1. So why are the older men to be just as virtuous as the appointed overseers? That's a good question, Nick. If, uh, if I didn't look into the original language, I would have thought that it was just continuing the conversation already started in chapter 1. But you look in the original language, and it, it, they are different words. The word elders in chapter 1-5 is uh, presbyteros, and the word older men in chapter 2, verse 2 is uh, presbyte. And so these are different words uh, referring to different kinds of, of uh, people, especially in the context of it goes into then older men, older women, younger men, younger women. So why would these older men then, who are not appointed as elders, why would they have to be under the same kind of scrutiny and standard that an elder who is appointed is to be under? And I believe the answer lies in the fact that Paul expects there to be a pool of qualified elders ready to go, ready to step up to the plate at any moment. I'm thinking of what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Do you remember that, Nick? That if an older man aspires to be an elder, he pursues a noble work. That's right. That's right. So there's this aspiration that I think is to to be there in the older men so that if called upon, they are ready and qualified to be uh, an overseer in God's church. So that's what I think. I think that this was not the uh, super Christian, but I think it was the standard in which all Christian men strove to attain to. That's that's the way I see it and makes sense to me. I don't know, Nick, what do you think? I think that's right on the money, and I, I believe I said it last episode that every older man, every man is, is heading toward becoming an older man in, in, in the general sense of becoming an elder. Um, so the that role that position in the church of being an overseer, a bishop, a, a shepherd, that's essentially yours to lose um, by not living a life of character and integrity, not being sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness, etc. So, um, and and that would, I think that leads nicely into what you're talking about with this, this pool of qualified older men who, that, that's always available um, to step into that role and to lead Christ church in a way that is dignified and self-controlled and all that. So um, that's, I think that's right on the money um, in terms of, look, the, the, the eldership, the, the role of being a, a, a leader in that role, that's, that's a man's to lose. And I think that ties in nicely and answers some of the tough questions we had last time about, okay, let's say you don't want to be an elder. Does that mean you can be polygamous? <laughs> right, like, right. Well, well, no, not if the older men in general are to be meeting the same kind of qualifications. So like you said, if it's yours to lose, then it would not permit the, the non-aspiring elder to be polygamous because older men in general are to have these same kinds of qualities and qualifications. And um, that seems a bit more harmonious to me, at least when you're trying to put it all together. Now, Nick, um, speaking of qualities, you don't just have qualities here for older men. 
uh, or appointed elders. You also have qualities for older women, for young women, for young men. Now, why are these qualities here? Why do you have Paul honing in on different age groups or different types of people? Is there something he's trying to accomplish here? I think so. Um, and again, it's interesting that self-controlled shows up in all these. Uh, no one is exempt from being self-controlled. Um, but you do have these different uh, kinds of people. You have people who are all different ages. They come from all different backgrounds. They have different points of view. And I believe that is a recipe for conflict. And so Paul and really the Holy Spirit with the wisdom of God uh, bathing over all of this, in order to maintain the harmony and the unity in the church, uh, what is essential are these Christian ethics, these uh, these practices, the, the conduct that is to be uh, uniform for Christians across time and space. And that is going to help us in dealing with one another interpersonally as, as Christians. And I should say, as we kind of review this, um, this section as a whole, undergirding all of this is the gospel. All right? These aren't just things that Paul is picking out at random. Um, underlying all this is the gospel, the character and life of Christ, it is the ethic of Christ and, and the ethic of his kingdom. And so um, in order to live wisely and in a Christ-like way, um, with good conduct toward other people, um, we're going to have to put on these various qualities and characteristics. And so then what happens is each of these qualities serve to enable the older men and the younger men, the older women and the younger women, to live harmoniously with one another. And, and that's the beauty of the gospel as well, is it calls people from all different backgrounds and all different personal histories and all different experiences and brings them together in one beautiful bride for Christ. Um, and that's, that's how this, this um, sound doctrine, this healthy code of conduct um, is beneficial to the body. Um, what, what do you say? Nick, are you telling me that in the presence of Holy Spirit-inspired apostles and prophets who began these congregations, that there was still conflict? Believe it or not, even all these good Christian <laughs> folks sometimes didn't get along with each other. I know we don't have that problem today, but they no, did. because we have their writings, so surely with their writings we would not have conflict, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay, enough, enough being facetious. All right. Well, Nick, uh, I, I think that's right. All of those qualities, they have to be the ambition of each Christian, no matter what stage of life they're in, if we are to continue to bear fruit as the church and to uh, be harmonious. And harmonious doesn't always mean uh, consensus, unless it comes to the consensus of how we should live godly, righteous lives. Well, so, yeah. uh, when it comes to these various virtues... And, and now we're kind of bringing in a tight focus here on um, a wife who is not virtuous, which is um, verse 5. Um, if 
the, the last part of verse 5 says that the word of God may not be reviled. The implication is if a wife is not doing the things prescribed here, um, yeah. loving her husband and children, being self-controlled, right. pure, working at home, etc., that the word of God would be um, maligned and would be reviled. So why, why would the word of God be dishonored when a wife is not practicing these virtues and um, by extension, are these things still required today? I think that's a good question. It's, it's almost you have to think about what does he mean by the word? Because it's, it's not uncommon for a, a New Testament writer to use the word in reference to Jesus himself. And so if the word is referencing Jesus, could we be dishonoring the one whom we represent? Because we go as his disciples representing him. He is with us to the end of the age. Uh, do we dishonor that representation when as uh, Christian wives and Christian husbands, when we act no better than the worshipers of other gods or than the atheists or the, uh, the, the person who has not yet come to believe in Christ? If our role as mother and father and husband and wife turns out looking worse than the the non-loyal person to Christ, then does that not misrepresent Christ? Does it not dishonor his name? I think so, but it could be referring to the doctrine again, because there's this mention of sound doctrine, healthy teaching. So what do we do with that healthy teaching? We got to live it out. It has to be understood in the mind, but then also lived out in our daily lives. Otherwise, we become hypocrites in the eyes of each other because you know you look around at church and you see people who are acting one way uh, in, in the church building but then living a totally different way in their workplace or in their homes. Well, that's we start to see each other then as hypocritical. We start to uh, look like hypocrites in the eyes of unbelievers. And if the word is spreading, if Christianity is spreading, and people are starting to hear about this Christ and the way he calls us to live by the authority of his kingship in this world and over our lives, when we live not in harmony with that teaching, it makes our teaching look like it's without power, like it is no better than the writings of Epimenides, like we talked about last time, or any of the other prophets or uh, seers of the cultures around them. So... That's, that's sort of where I'm getting at right here. I think that we often miss that disconnect. We miss the disconnect that what we're doing can dishonor the word of God, and it's the word that brings about faith in the heart of the hearer, and we need to make sure we keep that word as something above reproach. So when, are you saying that, that there are some Christians who show up on Sunday and behave a certain way but then don't act that way the rest of the week? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I had one brother tell me that uh, his world was really shocked and uh, turned upside down when a coworker found out that he was a Christian and he said, man, I would have never guessed that you were a Christian. <laughs> wow. And he was uh, really, really took aback and he had to examine himself and say, how how am I living? How is it that my coworkers would have never guessed that I follow Jesus Christ? So it's, it's a disconnect that it sneaks up on us. 
but it's there and it's especially there i mean nick this is how i came to be a part of the church i saw a guy who i was working with who was a christian and i could tell that he must be a christian of some sort because he did not uh cuss in the back of the restaurant like everybody else did he didn't go to the late night drinking parties on the weekends after their shift um he was always courteous and kind he stuck out like a sore thumb in the midst of all these other people who are of course smiling and happy and polite to their customers because they want to get a tip this is at a restaurant talking about waiting tables but in the back of the restaurant uh things are flying off the handle and uh this guy he really set an example that let me see that he's the guy that i would want to talk to if i had questions about church if i had questions about the bible and that's how that's how that was my connection to to becoming a christian yeah that's a beautiful thing when that happens and so then and i guess this is sort of answering the the second part of this is these virtues are still uh, applicable and uh, they still inform christians today yes absolutely i think all of these virtues are just as virtuous in the 21st century as they were in the first century they're going to be lived out in a different context in a different culture yes but they are virtuous and righteous and good and should be striven for um i don't know if i use that right but you should strive for it nonetheless and i think especially with this wife the virtuous wife becomes a vital example for all people to see i mean the wife is a critical part of the family unit and thus becomes a living testimony of god's good plan for the family unit and so for her to love her husband and her children and to uh, work hard at home and to be sensible and pure and kind this can really really set the tone for the home life and the example for others who want that same kind of home life people's home lives can often be a wreck and a disaster in a place that you don't want to be but the wife who works hard to make it a place of refuge and comfort and peace and love and in a place you do want to be boy that is a powerful testimony to uh, unbelieving family units in this country today and that's going to bring us to our tough text of the day where we're talking about these younger women and how they are to be working at home um, and how that's still applicable today, uh, Alex. So are, obviously younger women are still to be workers at the home, but how does that manifest today? Well, Nick, I, I think we're definitely treading on uh, dangerous ground here. <laughs> <laughs> I think that it's going to be easy to uh, be offended at some of the ideas here. So... I'm going to be I'm going to be light where I step. Um I'm going to be careful. So I think there is a trend for more and more families to have their children being watched over by other people than the parents. Uh and not just for a little part of the day or for a few days a week, but we're talking for pretty much all day every day from the time that they're two or three months old from the time that they're babies and um, I think this trend is very dangerous the way we're heading because this is uh, something that we're doing I think both inside and outside of the church in other words unbelievers uh, do this as well and believers do this as well and so here's where I think 
I think, number one, nobody is going to uh, love your child the way that you love that child. Mm -hmm. And that child needs mom. They need, I mean, what mom, uh, not many moms, I think, would say that somebody else can love and raise this child better than I can. Um, But because I think of our current cultural context, we are struggling as families to really drive this home, no pun intended. And I think that um, we have to really examine our uh, how much we are letting money come into the equation. And so there's often this idea that we have to have two working parents no matter how you know how young the child is we need these two working parents to get enough income to make ends meet and i think what we need to start doing as christians if we're going to set an example of what's more important the family unit or money or your lifestyle um lifestyle i mean as like what you're comfortable with having and not having in this material world and i think we're going to need to start making some hard uh decisions about hey do we need to get a smaller place to live in? Do we need to um, cancel some amenities in our lives that we really don't need? How how low can we get our monthly budget in order to keep mom in the home, giving the love and care that that child needs from her specifically? So I'm just going to leave it there. I'm going to leave the questions open. I'm not going to be too hard and fast about this, but I think we are heading in a dangerous direction. The family unit is struggling, and I think it would struggle less if mom was at home a lot more often than what we see today. I don't disagree with that at all. Um, There is a temptation, I believe, especially in our current American culture uh, with, um, with dismissing what Paul is saying here as antiquated and yeah just cultural doesn't apply right right and uh you know this is paul writing from a male-dominated culture that um is we're it's different now and um but so i'll i'll address it from a little different perspective if if a wife does work outside the home and I know um, there'd be some who disagree with that, but if a wife did work outside the home, she could still be busy in the home. Uh, she can still um, work, be working at, in the home because th- that phrase itself indicates um, she's, she's also part of the team of husband and wife, which is managing the household responsibilities. Um, and it gets coupled with the very next word, which is kind, um, which is a, not just a characteristic for young women, but for all Christians. It's a, it's a fruit of the Spirit. But that coupling, working at home with the kindness aspect, I think, denotes that she's not going to um, go off the handle and get upset over those mundane demands and the routine household duties um and so she's going to she she can still operate in the sphere of the home in a way which is 
which is good and godly, even though she may uh, be part of bringing home the bacon, as it were. Well, so, and I think, so I'll say one more thing. I think sure. that um, this will have to be worked out in the context of the husband and wife relationship, that they work through these things together. Um, right. And, and, um, and with kindness and, and humility and all gentleness. Absolutely. Yeah. I was just going to say the same thing that, you know, if the husband is thinking, man, um, my kids would really benefit from seeing their mom more often. Uh, maybe we can make this work. Uh, well, the husband needs to play a vital role in making that happen, not just, um, you know, with overseeing the home and, and, and working hard, but also appreciating the daily mundane, mundane things that the wife has to do. Um, if the wife uh, doesn't feel accomplished or like she's doing something important because you just have these repetitive daily tasks that uh, seem to go unnoticed, well, the husband needs to step in there and be uh, her number one fan, uh, the head of her fan club, and make her feel appreciated because without her and her work, uh, your home, your life would be very different. It would not be as, as good as it is when she does so much daily work to take care of the children and to take care of the home and to be a good wife. It's so much work. Uh, it just it needs to be appreciated and no one can ha appreciate it uh, and have it be as meaningful to her as the husband appreciates it. So like you said, it's teamwork that makes the dream work. So let's, uh, let's press forward here and uh, talk about verse 8 where Paul talks about opponents so that an opponent, Christians, he's calling these Christians to live in a certain way so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Alex, who's the opponent here? Well, um, I think first of all, we could definitely say that the opponent would be anybody out to falsely accuse the Christian of hypocrisy or double standards. Now, if it's a if it's a true accusation, I wouldn't consider that person an opponent. I would consider that person um, a speaker of truth. If if we are rightly accused of hypocrisy, then let that be a a, a check and a, a moment of reflection so that we can repent. But if it's false, if it's just people who are looking for something to accuse us of, but when they do it, it's groundless. It has no evidence. Um, then they they are an opponent to Christ and His Church, so we need to watch out for for those kinds of people. What do you think? It is interesting that opponent is singular here. Um, he doesn't say so that opponents plural, but the the singular. And so some have suggested that maybe Paul has a a specific person or a specific being in mind, like Satan, Satan the opponent of the church. Oh. Um, Others have said it's uh, a representative. It could be a representative of a specific faction or group. We talked about the circumcision right, group at right. the end of chapter 1. So he could have in mind the ringleader of that particular group. So, Not necessarily mutually ex exclusive. The synagogue of Satan in the book of Revelation, you have these Jews who are unbelievers but also attacking Christians and churches that... It says they belong to the synagogue of Satan. Jesus calling certain unbelieving Jews in John chapter 8 
right. children of the devil. That's right. So, so yeah, it, it, six of one, half a dozen of the other, right? Yeah. <laughs> they, uh, there are times when, unfortunately, the those who were supposed to be the people of God were actually doing the most damage to his kingdom. So... This is interesting if it's Satan, though, Nick. Uh, I hadn't thought about this because normally we think, okay, Satan's the uh, the heavenly prosecuting attorney, right? And we have Jesus as our defense attorney to say all of these accusations you have against us, um, even though they're true and there's evidence, uh, Jesus has taken care of it. He's provided the the propitiation, the, sac- the substitutional sacrifice. But... Um, it's like Jesus is saying, okay, now that I've done that for you, don't give the devil any more grounds or evidence for accusing you. I've, I've gotten you free and saved, and uh, now you're guiltless before the, the judge and father on the throne of, of the world. However, from this point onward, you strive to make sure that Satan doesn't have any actual real evidence to bring against you in the heavenly courts from here on out. Is that possible here, Nick? Yeah, I don't have um, I don't have any disagreement with that either. That's that could definitely be uh, what Paul has in mind. Um, so, a couple different options there, a few different options for for your consideration, oh diligent listener. Um, <laughs> uh, let's talk about verse ten and adorning the doctrine. Um, we. What is adorning the doctrine, and how can or why would a master adorn the doctrine of God just because of a virtuous slave? Doesn't that remind you of what we just talked about, about the wife when she's not a virtuous wife? Um, the word of God could be dishonored. The word of this God. Is kind of the, yeah. This is kind of the positive way of, of stating it? Yeah, adorning yeah. the doctrine of God. Um not dishonoring the word of God. I don't. Where do you go with this, Nick? I I read this as the slave adorning the doctrine. Okay. And and so and, and we've already if we've de, if we're defining doctrine, sound doctrine, as the Christian ethic and practice. What you have here are the lowest folks on the societal ladder shining the brightest. Um, and and really demonstrating and manifesting the transforming work of Christ and the Holy Spirit in their life. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I hadn't considered it being the the slave doing the adorning. I had always thought that he was referring to the master doing the adorning based Mm. off of what they see the slave doing. In other words, doctrines are most persuasive when they are not just spoken out but lived out and seen in action in the life of the believer. So you gave me something to think about there. I hadn't thought about the slave doing the adorning. Well, very, very good. Uh, Nick, if we move on to verse 13, there's an interesting phrase here where it says, um, we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And this is back of... um, living righteously and godly in the present age. So I take this to mean he is referring to the resurrection. The Our blessed hope 
for the Christian is the resurrection from the dead, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's his return to claim what he has already uh, put a down payment on, a deposit with the Holy Spirit. He's come to claim it and bring everyone home to present to his Father in heaven at the end of this age. Um, if he is talking about the resurrection in this context of virtuous lifestyle, then what is the connection there between the resurrection and living a virtuous lifestyle? So, and here's the thing, hope, he's already talked about hope earlier in chapter 1, verse 2, and it was connected with eternal life. Um, here, the blessed hope, he specifically names it as the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, at the glorious appearing, if we're going to keep that connection of eternal life from 1 verse 2, at the glorious appearing, we will step into, we will enter into the full <clears throat> and final experience of eternal life. And as I was thinking about this, even then, <laughs> that can only happen because of the resurrection and the transformation of our lowly bodies. So uh, I think... I still end up in the same place where you're at with this, where he is talking about the resurrection and the final appearing of Christ. And so what does that have to do with the virtuous lifestyle? Well, when we became a Christian, we were, we were dead in our sins before we became a Christian um, by being united with Christ in baptism, and then we are raised to live this new life. This is Paul in Romans 6. Uh, right, by the right. way, he'll we'll deal with it next uh, in the next episode when we get to chapter three and the renewal and regeneration and all that. But right. in the meantime, there's obviously a very close connection between resurrection and this new lifestyle, resurrection and new life, and um, and I, I believe that's what Paul is talking about here, where the grace of God that has appeared, which I believe is Jesus Christ in time and history. Sure. Um, he brings salvation for all people, but he trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live, there it is, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Resurrection, new life, they go hand in hand. And so this new virtuous lifestyle is tied directly to our resurrection and anticipates and looks forward to our future resurrection and eternal life with God forever. Yeah, I think that's right on the money, Nick. In fact, as I was looking at this, it reminded me a lot of Second Peter chapter 1. When we went through and did that podcast, it talks right off the bat about these virtues that you add this to this to this to this to this, and you have this divine macrame, which you are um, with God and His Spirit working together to bring about the inner transformation of the Christian. And without that inner transformation, uh, you will not be ready or worthy to receive the outer transformation. That is the turning of our lowly bodies into a heavenly body, that resurrected body, which will be made like the, uh, like the stars and the different glory of the heavenly host, as you might recall from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So in other words, we strive as a Christian for the inward transformation in order to prepare for our outward transformation. And the reason that we can do that, the reason that we even are in this race, is because we were allowed to 
register and qualify and participate in the race by the grace of Christ Jesus. And without that grace, you cannot be a part of that race. I'm not trying to rhyme here. It just happened accidentally. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So that's that's where I go with this. Um, When you keep your mind on the resurrected body that you're going to get, it needs to be um, known that you're getting that resurrected body after you complete your inner transformation. And that's what we're doing right now. We're working on that inside transformation. Mm. Um, so softball, ready? Here we go. Does, Jesus, <laughs> does, does Titus call Jesus God in verse 13? What, what, what? <laughs> Absolutely. The glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. I mean, maybe other than John 1, 1, you can't get a clearer statement about Jesus being God. And you know what? This would not be offensive to the Jew in the first century. That's what I think. I think it wouldn't be offensive to the Greek or the Jew. So think about it. The Greeks have lots of gods. They have no problem thinking that uh, somebody could be uh, God in the flesh. They have all kinds of stories about the gods coming down and putting on flesh and doing things among men. It's not offensive to them. It's also not offensive to the Jew because at the first century, there was a well-developed and generally accepted doctrine uh, called the two powers in heaven. They believed in a visible Yahweh and an invisible Yahweh. And for the word to put on flesh, to become the visible word of God, the visible Yahweh, the Jews already had a framework to hang that on top of. So this is something that I think Jesus affirms in John chapter 10, verses 34 and following, when they're angry at him and they want to stone him. And they're saying, we're not angry at you for a miracle. We're angry at you because you you make yourself equal to the Father, to God. And Jesus says, wait, 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 you know the scriptures. What do you think the scriptures mean when it says, I said, you are God's? quoting Psalm 82. So the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh, uh, that does that should not offend the first century Jew. It might offend the Jews later on because they got rid of that understanding because Christians were saying Jesus is the visible Yahweh of the Old Testament that shows up and now he, he showed up again and you rejected him. Well, that made the unbelieving Jews want to completely get rid of that doctrine about the invisible and visible Yahweh. So uh, after the first century, you see that disappear. But at this time, it is not offensive to the Jew or to the Greek to say that Jesus is God. They had frameworks to make it work. So, and correct me if I'm wrong here, um, they wouldn't have been offended at the deity aspect, but uh, Paul does talk about how the crucifixion of Christ um, that would have been a stumbling block for Jews and folly to the Gentiles over in First Corinthians chapter one. So, right, right. The the deity aspect, they can get there, but Christ on the cross, that was right. It just right, right. They went haywire on that. Is, that. is that fair? I think that's completely fair. And what's interesting is I I feel like it's almost reversed today. I feel like mm. the unbelieving Jew today can't get there on the deity aspect but that they could get there on the crucifixion aspect because you have more i think more and more jews um understanding that uh it's not out of this out of the question to to see a suffering messiah um 
even with a view of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 being Israel as a as a um, collective doing the suffering um, but it's you know it it just changes I guess over time people have different problems and different aspects of what they can accept and not accept and uh, but at this time I think it's perfectly reasonable for people to not have a problem in Titus's audience with Jesus being God so let's wind this down and talk about what we're carrying across the bridge for today. Absolutely. And, um, and especially regarding verse 14 about how we are to be, uh, how Christ has purified for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What does it look like now to be zealous for good works, good deeds? You know, Nick, uh, I think part of the answer needs to be also brought in uh, with the picture of are these good deeds that are being done here does paul have in mind individuals going out and doing good deeds or does paul have in mind the the congregation the group of people that he's writing to Hmm. doing good deeds in other words it's it's one thing to go out and do a good deed on your own but when you work together with the whole church or congregation to do something good then that's a different that's a different aspect. You can bring more resources to the table, more skills to put together. I think and also it's like, is that good deed? Do you think Paul is aiming that towards unbelievers? Like, hey, church, get together and go serve in your community. Uh, or do you think Paul would be aiming at, hey, church, take care of each other? We have believers in the body who are hungry, who need clothes, who uh, need hospitality. Are these deeds again, aim towards taking care of each other so that perhaps the unbeliever would see how good we do take care and love one another, that it makes them want to be a part of us. So I think those are thrown into the equation. So here's what I would land. I would say that the church community slash congregation helping each other is priority number one, but it's not to the exclusion of individuals helping outsiders. I think that's Mm. there too, but I think priority number one is you need to make sure everyone in the body is doing good and is plugged in, no root of bitterness, plenty of encouragement, plenty of good deeds and help and practical ways being done for each other. Uh, Maybe this looks like a collection being taken to help the poor members of that congregation or another congregation. Maybe it's waiting for them to eat at the Lord's Supper. You're showing them that consideration. Maybe it's showing hospitality when... Christians are fleeing from persecution from one area to another. Uh, It's keeping each other fed. It's keeping each other clothed. It's keeping each other housed. It's equipping them to be better workers. It's equipping them to be better parents. It's equipping them to be better households and families. Because when you have healthy families coming together as the family of God, then you get a healthy family of God. So that's where I take that to mean. I think we need to pull it back, stop focusing on just the individual, and start focusing on how you as a congregation are zealous for good deeds. What do you which think? Which is, well, it's a very, that's very different than the current American culture, which is highly individualistic um, and, and tends to focus on the self, um, almost to the exclusion of others. And, and that, I think that's, that's typical of, of uh, the West and, and American, the American view of the person is is it's highly individual and yet these are commands to 
older men, plural, older women, plural, younger men, plural, younger women, plural. It's to, and, and it's to the church as a whole. That's, that's, um, that's who these commands for holiness are written to. That's right. Um, and so, I mean, everything, well, so that's too general. Um, a lot of what we see when it comes to the application of Scripture tends to focus on the individual. i got an application study Bible. Just about everything you read in there is, is connected to the individual. And yet this was intended to be lived out in the community of, of the faithful. And you're right, it was primarily for uh, the church, the household of God. Uh, but then it would have us. We take care of our own, and and I think that's that's first priority, like you said. But this does have a spillover effect where we also seek to take care of others, and we right. are on the front lines of uh, being uh, workers, being doers of good uh, in the community. It also factors in here. It also means that living the Christian life, it's not. It doesn't only mean the absence of evil from our lives. Sure. But also includes the presence of good. We are to actively avoid evil works. That's part of what it means to be holy. But at the same time, holiness is brought to completion when we actively pursue good works in service to God. That's right. Zealous. So. Zealous. And we're we'll talk about that more in the next episode because Paul when it comes to um, good works, good deeds Chapter three, that's a key theme. Absolutely. Uh, in that, but that's for next time. That's, that's right. for next time. Well, Nick, I'll give you a softball uh, for us to close out the episode here. In verse 15, Paul says to Titus, speak about these things, exhort, reprove with all authority, let no one disregard you. Does Paul anticipate some kickback from people? Um, there's always going to be, I think, Maybe not everybody, but some who are going to kick back, push back when it comes to the presentation of um, the high and holy standard of Christ. But uh, rebuke with all authority. Titus has authority, but here's here's where this gets focused in. It's not inherent in who he is or even in the office that he holds as a minister there on Crete. Any authority that any church leader wields, any authority that any church member wields, is ultimately the authority of Christ. Because Christ has told us, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. It's his. And so that's the authority that Titus is going to wield, and that's the authority that, that any church leader and any church member is going to wield. And that's what I have to say about that. Well, Nick, I think that's well said, and we'll conclude our episode on those remarks again visit our website at swordplay.cast.rocks feel free to subscribe to the podcast on itunes or google play podcast Uh, give us a good review uh, rate us share us repost us on social media if you have any questions email us at swordplaypodcast at gmail.com we'll read your question on the air and answer it thanks again for tuning in to another episode of swordplay 